What's up, everybody? This is Daniel Atondo. I'm the lead pastor at Eden Church, and we're so excited that you've joined us on the Eden Podcast. The next 30 minutes, we hope, will add value to your life, deepen your connections to others, but most importantly, we want to help you grow in your faith. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. All right. Can we show God some love for all that He's done in this community over the last few years? It has been such such a cool thing to experience, and, uh, and I'm so grateful that we get to be on the journey together because there is so much of what happens here on a week-to-week basis that, yes, we are here for the community, but those of us who are participating in the life of this community uh, are really being the, one, are the ones that are being transformed in the process. We're the ones that are growing and learning and, and really the ones that God is developing and changing the most, and so it is a priv- privilege to be on this journey with you. Uh, one thing I do want to mention is that next week we have some really big news that we're going to be announcing to the church, and I hope that you can make it back. And I think that this news, this shift, this little pivot in our plan is going to probably be one of the most significant decisions that we make in the life of the church. And so I just want to mention that uh, for you to come back next week so you can be a part of celebrating where we believe God is leading us uh, in, in the months to come. So it's going to be a great, great day. But t- this morning, we're going to get into a brand new series called The Struggler's Real. And I just want to do a quick little test. I want to pull the audience this morning. And I wonder how many of you have ever used the phrase, the struggle is real. You don't have to go ahead, raise your hand then if you feel comfortable. I use it. I use it all the time. And then I did some research on it. And I realized that it was actually supposed to be like this ironic statement, right? Like people who live these privileged, privileged lives uh, are complaining about some difficulty in it. For example, my hot grande latte mocha coffee just burnt my lip. Hashtag the struggle is real. But I just want to say, if you use it like that, God bless you. That's not how I use the phrase. Okay, I use the phrase when I come into this life circumstance where I realize that certain things are outside of my control and I just have to throw my fingers together, do a little hashtag and say the struggle is real. I've said this when I was at the grocery store and my kids were having a meltdown and everyone started looking at me and there was nothing I can do. Everybody realized I couldn't contain the anger and I just said the struggle, the struggle is real, folks. Pay attention to what you're doing. Don't worry about me. I feel like I say this in my head when people come to me and they talk to me about relational issues that just do not have a simple solution. And I feel like, man, the struggle is real. Like there is struggle in our life. I feel like I say this anytime someone who's dating or in the process or in approaching the dating life or considering the dating life and all the complexities that that involves in our culture and in this generation, I'm like, man, the struggle is real, right? There are some serious struggles when we talk about dating and being single and marriage and relationships. And so that is what this series is really all about. It is really getting to that point in our life where we can admit to ourselves that our lives don't actually look like our social media feeds. Can I get an amen? Amen. All right. And And there's something so refreshing about that because I feel like we are living in a culture where we are trying to promote someone that we're not so that we can impress people that we don't know that well and sometimes don't even like that much. And so I hope that in this series, we walk away with at least three things. The first is I want you to know that in your struggle, you are not alone. I want you to know that whatever you're going through, whatever conflict you're experiencing, whatever emotional battles you're wrestling with inside your heart or inside your mind, you have to know that there have been other people 
in your place that have experienced what you're experiencing, and you are not alone. The second thing, I want you to know that God has a plan to redeem and to restore whatever was lost or broken in the process. You have to know that there is a God who understands what you're going through, and he has a perfect plan on how to redeem and to restore whatever you think that you have lost. You are not without hope. Number three, I want you to know that you can do something about it. That whatever circumstance you're in, whatever situation you're in, you have to know that you can do something about it. It's not going to be easy. It's probably going to require a lot of work, but you have the potential to influence your circumstance. All hope has not been lost. So those are the three things I want you to know as we enter into this service. I want you to walk away with hopefully every single message is to know those three things. But I also want you to know that with the type of church that we are, right, we have from the very beginning have had the vision to be a church for people who consider church to be irrelevant. We wanted to be a church for people who have had nothing to do with church. And so what that means is that right now you are in a community of people that may not believe what you believe about politics. There means that you are in a community of people that may not believe what you believe about education. There may be people in here that don't make what you make. And so we are in a room of a bunch of diverse people with a diverse collection of experiences and backgrounds. And so when we talk about this series, as we get into these conversations about relationships and love and sexual intimacy, we, want, we need you to know, I want you to know that about half of you may disagree with what I say. And that's okay. Because one of the things that I committed to when we started this church was that as much as I understood how, I'm just going to teach what this book tells me. The way that I understand it, I'm going to teach it. I'm going to be committed to that. And we're just going to be faithful to that. And so we need to know as we enter into these conversations that you may disagree with what I say, and that's okay. But maybe it'll be fuel for you to explore and to sort of dig into what we're talking about uh, today. And you're always welcome to ask me questions. And so this morning, we're going to begin reading a little bit of the correspondence between a guy named Paul, who was a spiritual entrepreneur, he started a bunch of churches in the Mediterranean world, and he was really good at it. And eventually, a lot of these churches became really, really successful. But at the beginning of nearly every church, it was sort of barely hanging on by the edge. They were super fragile organizations. And one of the churches was particularly fragile because it was primarily made up of new people who had just come into faith for the first time. They were trying to understand how their faith spoke into the, the truths that they had understood in the past, how it conflicted with some of their cultural practices. And one of the things that's really interesting about this particular church is that it was known in a lot of ways as sort of the first century version of Las Vegas. And you guys all know the saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, they said that about this little city called Corinth. They said, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. And so Paul is really in this letter and a good chunk of this letter helping for this group of people to explore and to navigate some of the sexual ethics of the culture. And so he begins to encounter some of these questions from this community of people. And what's really funny to look at is that Paul, for the first six chapters of this letter, doesn't answer the questions that they're asking. He's answering the questions that they should have been asking. So I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but sometimes you ask questions that actually have nothing to do with the problems that you're really going through. 
Sometimes we're asking questions, and there's a huge gap between the questions that we're asking and the problems that we're experiencing. They were asking about marriage expectations when they should have been asking about the guy who was sleeping with his stepmother. They were asking about how to have healthy rhythms in their marriage life when they should have been asking about how to help this group of people in the church that, was, that were committed to religious prostitution. And they're over here asking questions about marriage when there are all these other big issues going on. Now, it wasn't that Paul was invalidating their questions because he knew that they were valid questions, but he knew that if he didn't address these bigger issues first, then what he was, if he was answering the questions they were asking, would have almost no significant event in the life of the church. And so he, for, for six chapters, begins to answer the deeper issues of this church. And then we get to chapter 7, and this is where Paul begins to wrestle with a few more things. Because he knew that they were asking the wrong questions. Every evening, I try to read to my kids. I try to get into the habit of making sure that they're developing some literary proficiency in their life. And so at first, it started off with like color, coloring books and, uh, you know, little picture books. And then we started digging into some deeper content. So a few months ago, we started reading through Huckleberry Finn. And I don't know if you've ever read Huckleberry Finn, but it is, it is not which you want to read to your kids. And I, and I didn't know that. Like right before they go to bed, I'm talking about how he's faking his own death and he's smearing blood all over the cabin. And so we had to cut that book out. But then we started reading the Jungle Book. Then we started reading the Jungle Book. Again, not the best book for kids, but I was able to sort of trans, uh, you know, describe what I was reading a little bit differently. But one of the interesting things that happened in this season as I was sort of developing this habit of reading to my kids is that they started asking a lot of questions, annoyingly a lot of questions. And, there were, and so I would tell Kayla, I'm like, they're asking so many questions. He said, oh, it's good, it's good. They're, that means they're engaging with the content. But I couldn't see that. And the reason why is because they were not asking any questions that had to do with the storyline of the book. They weren't asking any questions that had to do with character development. They were asking questions like, how many whiskers does Bagheera have? And they wouldn't just ask that on one page, but they wanted to know every time there was a drawing of Bagheera, how many whiskers did he have? How many claws did Baloo have? And I, there were moments in this process where I could literally just put my head back on the chair, and they would just ask themselves questions. And they, didn't, they weren't waiting for a response. They were really looking for an answer. And so it was so frustrating because sometimes, and I think this is a picture of how we approach some of the things that we're dealing with in our life, is we are asking questions that aren't really getting to the issue of what we're dealing with. And so that's what this church was doing. They were asking a bunch of questions that had nothing to do with their problems. And then finally, in chapter 7, Paul slowly begins to address the questions that they were asking. And based on some of Paul's answers, we know that really this community was trying to get a grasp on their own sexual ethics. They were trying to understand, in light of everything that they heard their culture saying about sex and relationship and marriage, does this newfound faith have anything to offer that narrative? And I think this is interesting because historically, the church has not been very good at answering questions that people are asking. In fact, we've been really good about answering questions that nobody's asking and being silent on the issues where there are people who are really struggling. There are a lot of Christians, I think, that like to spend their time in the book of Revelation. And we like to talk about a lot of speculative parts of 
some of that type of genre of literature. And we'll spend years and years studying those things and trying to tease out all these little tiny nuances from the passage. And I'm not saying that that is invaluable because that is all the Word of God and it is so valuable. But at the same time, we are not speaking to the issues of our culture. We're not speaking to the things that people are wrestling with every single day. There are Christians in our community every day that are miserable in their marriage, wishing that they were single again. And there are single people in our community thinking that marriage is going to be the answer to their isolation and to their loneliness. There are people in our community who are constantly wrestling with their sexual identities, trying to make sense of it all. There are people who are emotionally broken, trying to put pieces back together, and we're over here answering questions that nobody's asking. I don't know if you've ever seen that clip of Alan Iverson, where he says, we talking about practice? We keep talking, why are we talking about practice? That's how I feel like. Why do we talk about all these things that nobody's asking? And so Paul begins to delve into these really deep questions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and so that's where we pick up today. And so he begins, he says, now regarding the questions that you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. If there was any guy this morning that said, for the very first time, I'm going to give church a chance, they just completely cut out all possibility. <laughs> they said, honey, I gave church a chance, I showed up, but I've heard enough. Abstaining from sexual relationships is a good thing. I don't think this Jesus person has anything for me. And so some of us are like, what on earth is Paul talking about? He's crazy. He's crazy. But we have to understand the context that Paul was speaking into because actually someone was asking Paul about celibacy. Someone was asking Paul about that. And the reason why this was a thing and this was important in the first way, place is because there were groups of people that operated with the philosophy of, of the, with the mindset that all physical things were evil and because sex was part of a physical uh, part of a relationship that it too was evil and outside of the purpose of procreation, it was an evil thing. And so they thought in their minds that if they lived celibate lifestyles, then they were more holy, that they weren't engaging in sexual activity or sinful things. And so Paul was saying that it's good, that if that's how you feel about the situation, that's up to you. That's fine. You are not missing out. And I love that we get to begin the conversation this way. Because I think that sometimes in the church, we elevate this status of marriage as if it's something more significant than being single. And sometimes we talk about marriage as if it's like everyone's destination and goal. Like until you get married, you are not fully living a complete life. Or until you have children, you are not fully satisfied in what God is doing for you. And so I love that at the very beginning of this letter, as Paul begins to address some of the sexual ethic of this community, he says, if you don't want to have sex, if you want to be single, if that's kind of where you're at in life, that's okay. You're good. You're complete. You don't need that to be fulfilled. But then he goes on and he gets a little bit deeper. He says in verse 2, but because there is so much sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So first he says it's good if you want to be single. But he also says you have to understand that there are boundaries. And he uses the phrase sexual immorality. And I think that maybe in our culture, when we hear that phrase, it kind of sounds like this archaic, outdated way of thinking. But all that Paul was really trying to say is that in relationships, there are boundaries. There are boundaries. There are boundaries to what we do in life in almost every section of what we're doing. 
In every sector of our life, in every sphere of our life, there are boundaries. And so what Paul is not wanting, he's not saying that God doesn't want you to enjoy sex. But he is saying that he wants you to enjoy sex beyond the cheap, uncommitted levels of intimacy that have defined our relationships in the past. And so this was a thing. Because the community of people that Paul was talking to are probably the same type of people that you would imagine were showing up to Woodstock conferences in the 1970s. Or the same type of people that are driving down to Palm Springs and hanging out at Coachella. All right, there were very little sexual boundaries that defined the way this culture operated. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, don't settle for cheap intimacy. Don't settle for cheap intimacy. And actually, I just want you to know that that is going to be sort of a pervasive thought that God teaches about almost every part of our life. Don't settle for cheap relationships. Don't settle for a cheap career or a cheap marriage or cheap parenting or cheap intimacy. I think the one thing that we should be convinced of is if we believe that God designed our bodies and he was the designer of sex and he intended for it to be pleasurable, shouldn't we also assume that he also understands that what understands the best conditions for those things to operate in? So God is saying that there's a boundary and that sexual intimacy happens best within the context of marriage. Nobody's saying that it isn't enjoyable outside of marriage, right? Nobody's saying that. But this is what you learn from the school of hard knocks, is that intimacy without commitment will lead to a lot of regret. Because when you begin to give yourself away to someone else, when you begin to give away things that you value, to someone who does not value them the way that you do, you will be left in a wake of regret. He goes even deeper. In verse 3, he says, The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise, the wife to her husband. Now, I realize, at the reading of this statement, it is not the ro most romantic language in the world. I don't imagine that Paul is the most romantic person in the world, and I don't think that there is any woman today that dreamed about being her husband's duty <laughs> at some point in her life. But this is the deal. This is why Paul is talking about duty over desire. Because desire is sometimes this little fleeting thing that we think we have when we first meet somebody. But what Paul recognizes is that duty is the thing that actually produces desire. When I first met my wife, she's tall, she's beautiful, she has red hair and green eyes. I had desire. I didn't need anything to help me with desire. I had desire. But we've been married for almost 10 years now. We've been married for almost 10 years now. And at first, I used to think, I can't really talk about marriage with any level of confidence because we're so new to marriage. And so I didn't talk about marriage a lot. But I feel like we have been through some stuff over the last 10 years of our life. And we can talk about marriage from oftentimes a place of pain. But one of the things that I have realized over marriage is that duty does produce desire. And so now when I think about what I value about my wife, yes, she's beautiful and wonderful, but sometimes when I feel those emotions in my heart of like desire and love for her, it is after like a long day of work and her hair ain't <laughs> combed and she doesn't have makeup on and she's not dressed up and she's been busting it all day taking care of her boys doing some, some consulting on the side, side work, and doing all these things. And I look at her, and I'm like, man, 
that, that produced desire, her duty and her commitment and her faithfulness to our family, that, that is a deeper level of desire that I have gained for her. And so Paul begins to talk about this idea of duty. And he says each person is supposed to fulfill their marital duty to their spouses. And I feel like all the guys that checked out at verse 1, they're back. <laughs> they said, hey, you know what? Maybe we came to the wrong conclusion. This Jesus guy, I'm starting to, I'm starting to pick up on what he's laying down. I'm not, I'm not ready to check out yet. But this is what we have to understand. Guys, before you get that tattooed on your shoulder, before this becomes your life verse, we have to understand that there is sort of a broader application than just physical intimacy that Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about also there's the duty of, of a spouse's emotional companionship. It's psychological support, spiritual investment, relational development. So in other words, what we know is that in marriage, we are called to support the whole person. We are called to support the entire person, not just in one area. We're called to fulfill that duty. Verse 4 says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. About half the room just crossed their arms. And they said, What on earth? Because if that statement was left by itself, we would be really frustrated to think that the Bible supports something that has created, because what we know about history is that by and large, women in almost every generation and almost every culture have been one of the most marginalized people group in the world. And so when we read that, that can sound really, really offensive. For Paul to say that a woman's body is not her own, but that's only until you read what he says next. He says, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. And so what Paul is talking about in this moment is he's talking about this idea of mutual submission, which would have been absolutely revolutionary during this time. Because during the first century, women were oftentimes viewed as the property of their husbands. And Paul is telling this community that no, you are not, the wives are not property of husbands, but actually you go, you, both of you are called to regular mutual sacrifice to each other. In other words, what Paul is suggesting is that marriage is not a case study on how you get all of your needs met through another person. But it is better a study on how you and two, one other person transition to becoming one, how two people go through the painful process of becoming one. The gift that I would love to give every person in this room this morning is the permission to stop longing for a relationship that doesn't require regular, constant, painful self-sacrifice because it does not exist. It takes work to make a relationship work. And sometimes you'll hear people say, well, my marriage isn't working. But I think oftentimes there is a greater truth. This is not always the case, but oftentimes there is a greater truth that maybe you are not working at your marriage. You're not working at your marriage nearly as hard as you work at your job. You're not working at your marriage as hard as you're working at parenting, or your hobbies. Marriage is a, is a good thing, but it is not easy. And when we can embrace that truth, then we will have blessed marriages. It's like walking into the battlefield expecting that there are going to be bullets flying by your head so that you're not shocked when they are. Paul keeps going. Verse 5. 
He says, don't deprive each other of sexual relationships unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so that you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Afterward, you should come together again so Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so what he's saying is don't use sexual intimacy as a leverage point in your marriage. Don't use it to get back at someone because actually Paul is saying that this ought to be a natural, consistent part of your marriage routine that you are engaging in physical intimacy. And I love how candid and frank he is. And he's saying, don't stop having sex. Make that part of the rhythm. And he's saying, if you need to do it for a time, do it only with the intended purpose of doing it together. And he says, part of the reason why you shouldn't do that is because sometimes it'll open up the door to temptation in your marriage. It'll open up the door for other things to begin to seep in, like pornography or someone at the office that you find attractive and you can make laugh easy and you start to engage in unhealthy relationships. And so Paul says, don't do it. And then finally, he wraps up this thought with verse 6 and 7. He says, I say this as a concession, not as a command, but I wish everyone were single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. I don't know who Paul is personally, but who the heck does he think he is saying, I wish everyone was single. I feel like that's what people say to me when they see my kids melting down at the grocery store. It's like, I wish everyone in the world was single so this wouldn't happen. (laughs) But that's Paul. But this is what he was talking about. Paul was simply recognizing that there were certain benefits to being single over being married. And anyone who's married and anyone who's single knows that's true, right? Like you have a little bit more freedom over your schedule if you are single and you're not married and you don't have to consider someone else's schedule alongside your own. When you have children, you have to take that into consideration when you are planning your day. And so Paul is just saying, I probably couldn't have been such a successful entrepreneur if I had been married. And so we all know that's true. And so Paul's kind of coming in strong. He said, I wish you guys were all single. But he said, however, we each have our own gift. And so what Paul's saying is that being single is a gift. Being married is a gift. In the end, either of those options are good. They are both gifts that God gives us. And the interesting thing about this statement is that Paul uses the word charisma. And charisma actually means gift of grace. And so what Paul was saying is that, that yes, marriage is a gift and, and being single is a gift, but none of them are really a gift in themselves. Actually, they are the things that provide the gift, that in them we find the gift of grace. And if you know anything about marriage or anything about relationships or anything about single, it requires a lot of grace in our life. This morning I was driving to church and it was sprinkling and I turned my windshield wipers on. A little water would splash onto my windshield and then something would just wipe it clean. And then over again, a little bit more water would splash on the front of my windshield, and again, the wiper would wipe it clean. That is a picture of grace in relationships. That we are willing to overlook offenses in our life from someone who we know that we love and they love us, but we're not perfect people. And so when they offend us or when they do things to hurt us, we just wipe it clean. And we do that over And over again, we wipe it clean, we wipe it clean. And this is not in any way condoning unhealthy, toxic relationships. 
This is not in any way condoning physically abusive relationships, but this is talking about the reality that all of us are imperfect people. And as a result of that, we will, by nature, offend those we love the most. And Paul is saying that the greatest thing that you can offer your most significant relationships is to introduce this concept of grace, this thing that you do not earn, but that is given to you. Did you know that the same grace it takes to be content when you're single is the same grace that it takes to have a happy marriage? It is the same thing. And I know that there are some of us that maybe you're single, you're not dating, but you want to be in a relationship, and maybe you feel lonely at night, and, and sometimes you spend a lot of your time trying to figure out how to fill your schedule with a relationship because you think that it is the answer to your loneliness. But you have to know that there are married people in our room, potentially in our community, that feel the same exact way. And marriage is not the answer. And being single is not the answer. But it is embracing the gift of grace that we have in that season of life. And that's what happy couples know. That's what people who are in thriving relationship would really know because sometimes we think it's about finding the right person. But it's not about finding the right person or it's not about finding the perfect person, but it's finding the same person or it's really about being the right person the type of person that both offers grace when they've been offended, but also the type of person willing to receive grace and humility. We are all in deep need of grace. And I love that it is the Apostle Paul who is writing this letter to this community who maybe understands that the most. Because look at what he says in 2 Corinthians, the second letter that he wrote to this church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, it says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. I love that Paul, part of what Paul understood as providing value to his life was his own weaknesses because he understood that that is where Jesus came to fill in the gap. That in his weakness, God's grace was made perfect. And I wonder this morning, in what areas of your life do you need to have more grace for yourself? I wonder in what area of your life have you just allowed for yourself to beat yourself up? To speak all these negative things into your mind because maybe you're not where you thought you would be. Or you're not doing what you thought you would be. And so there has become so much self-hatred when you look in the mirror. This is not just about offering grace to someone else, but about receiving the grace that God has provided for us. I wonder, in what areas do you need to offer grace to someone else in your life? Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's an ex-boyfriend. Maybe it's your spouse. In what area of your life this week can you extend grace to someone else? My wife shared with me this really powerful statement that really, I think, articulated something that I felt for a long time, but it was uh, attributed to Plato. 
He says, be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. And I know that we come to church on a Sunday morning and we're all smiling and we're excited to be here. I know that that's true for me. I love being in this space on a Sunday morning, but on the back end of our lives, every single one of us is fighting some kind of hard battle that nobody else here knows about. That when we look into your eyes, we don't know what you're going through the rest of your week. We don't know what you're telling yourself in your head. We don't know what lies you're believing about yourself. And so I hope that as we continue to grow as a community of faith, we would be the type of community that is quick to offer grace. That we offer grace to one another because we know that none of us are perfect, but we are also being willing to receive grace on behalf of ourselves. Because we are not living in a perfect world and we are not perfect people. I think one of the most offensive things about the message of Jesus is that the Bible tells us that you will never, ever be good enough. That you will never be good enough, but the good news about this is that God doesn't expect you to be. In fact, he created a way because he knew that all along the way we would be suffering, that we would be trying to find our way, and we couldn't without his grace poured out on our life. Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. That includes your spouse, that includes your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, that includes everyone that we're around. But the grace of God wants to come into our mess and remind us that there was a God who was willing to redeem and to restore that which was lost and broken. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and we thank you for the grace that you have offered to us. Lord, I thank you that you have given us a vision for marriage and for relationships. And God, it is so important for us to be able to say that the struggle is real in every part of our life. In every season, God, there are things that are just so difficult to manage, things beyond beyond what we're capable of controlling. And God, it is so refreshing sometimes to just be able to admit that, to admit that our lives do not look like our social media feeds, that our lives are not perfect and they're messy and they're difficult. But God, you knew that. And that's exactly why you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to carry for us what we, what we could not carry ourselves. To do for us what we could not do for ourselves. And so God, I pray this morning that you would begin to help shape this culture of this community. That we would be filled with grace for other people and that we would be filled with grace for ourselves. Because we know that in the end, that is how good marriage is. And those are how, that is how healthy, healthy relationships survive. God, I pray today that if there is anyone in the room that has never received the free gift of grace that you have offered through your son, Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone that has never received the hope of life through your son, Jesus, God, that that, that would change today. That if there's anyone that has ever longed to be in a relationship with you but have felt that they have made too many past mistakes, or God, maybe there's someone in the room today that has been distant from you for a while. 
Life has gotten busy. Things have gotten chaotic. And slowly, you just begin to eke out of their life. I pray that today would be the day that the grace you promised through your son would be restored in their lives. And so, God, we pray that this morning. We thank you for what you've done. And we ask that you would continue to be with us throughout the week. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.